Ladies and gentlemen, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. Electric word, life, it means forever, and that's a mighty long time. But I'm here to tell you, there's something else. That's right. It's Rob, and that's Micaiah, and you are listening to You Forgot One. Today on You Forgot One, it's time for Prince's Purple Rain. A world of never-ending happiness. You can always see the sun, day or night. Micaiah. Of all the albums that you and I went through as we put together our original 50, it was almost guaranteed we would both have a Prince album. There's arguments to be made for Sign of the Times. There's even an argument to be made for 1999. But you and I have both selected Purple Rain. What do we need to know right up front? Start with the fact that in Rolling Stone's new updated 500 albums of all time this one cracked the top 10 i mean we're talking about this is an album that is probably the only one we're going to talk about that has also won two academy awards i mean when you talk about the 80s i mean this is in pop music this is what we're talking about is this album i mean this is there's prince and the revolution which is the band and there is prince and the revolution that is this album you know, it's, it's it's very epic as much as pop music can be in the 80s and probably still the most relevant pop record from the 1980s, I would say. It's, it's a sound that you can still recognize today in pop music. And 80s pop music doesn't always hold up very well because so much of it depends on like new access to new technology. So it... it 80s music from 1980 to 89 you know like it doesn't even age well within the decade mm-hmm. and, and this album has aged beautifully and the purple rain comes out june 25th 1984 it is released simultaneously with the movie um it, it is nine songs long runtime of 43 minutes as an album uh chef's kiss from micaiah uh perfection but I think there are two or three songs on Purple Rain that whether it's because of where they're used in the movie or because of how they originally played on the album. And and again, I think for a lot of people, it is hard to separate the film from this album. It's hard to to think of them uh, on their own, or at least it was for me. And in the last few years, maybe just in the last five years, I've begun to see this album separate from the film and, and begin to think about it separate from the film in in doing it that way there are three songs that i'm not crazy about the way they're used in the movie or the placement that they take in the movie and so because of that i didn't value them i think appropriately the way that i should but in the last few years uh i would die for you is a song that i have come to love far more than i than i ever did um that- I'm going to pause right there because that was my in, I think, to this album. Because having watched the movie as a young person, at that point in the movie, I mean, it's it's the very end of the movie, pretty much. I mean, it's the big finale. And I thought that was, like, one of the coolest things I've ever seen. There are two things I was obsessed with, all right, when I was in fifth grade. One was Michael Jackson's Motown 25 performance where he played Billie Jean and did the moonwalk. And then the second thing would be the I Would Die For You part in the movie Purple Rain. Mm-hmm. And then those, so those two things, those two people, and then Thrill and Purple Rain, those two albums were so essential to me. My original listening to the album and original viewing of the movie, I thought Baby on the Star would have made a better closing number and yet i agree with you that that uh, given given the <laughs> narrative story being told in the movie i think baby i'm a star is a better close and in terms of the 
<laughs> the musical style, the the I, I think I think Baby I'm a Star would have would have been a better ending. Um, but yeah, I would die for you. Um, Take me with you, second track on the album, which mm-hmm. took years for me to I think fully appreciate. Because you then, didn't like the motorcycle ride montage. And then Darling Nikki. Darling Nikki took me a long time to get behind. I think um, it's used oddly in the movie. Yeah. It's it's yes. actually kind of confusing because it's like her name's not Nikki. And she's getting what's happening right here? Like it is yes. it is confusing in the movie. Uh but the track I, I do like. Um, yeah. Personally. So so again, thinking starting to think of the album on its own merits, separate from the movie. I would die for you, darling Nikki, and take me with you are the three songs that, again, I've always thought they were great songs. But beginning to see the album separate from the movie has, I think, even elevated them that much more. And so I've always loved "Let's Go Crazy." How can you not? "Let's Go Crazy" for me, low key, maybe the second or third best Prince song in my opinion. Wait, out of any Prince song? Yeah. Oh wow. Let's go crazy. Take me with you. Come on. When doves cry. I mean, you want to talk about dynamic, enigmatic songs that seem to define simultaneously the time where the song was released and also our, our timeless. Um, when doves cry is one of those. I would die for you. And when, purple when, rain. When doves cry. Let's talk about this. I think the biggest single from the album, it has drums, keys, some guitar. Mm-hmm. And uh, most importantly, no bass. I mean, that, that is a wild choice to make. That, that is, you know, people who, who are listening to the A's like, this is experimental music. Like, people, mm-hmm. like they, they thought it was so bizarre. And not only was it bizarre, but it was the song of the summer in 1984. And with one of the most iconic music videos of the eighties. Because purple rain is nine tracks long. I always wished Morris day in the times jungle love was included as the 10th track on this album. I know it is not a print song. I know it is a song by a completely different band. Um, but he but wrote from, Jungle Love. He, he, so he wrote, wrote Jungle Love, but it's performed by Morris Day in the yeah. time. And, and so I think Jungle Love is one of the better songs in the movie. Mm-hmm. And well, I, when so, they, they recently released um, a compilation called Originals. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you listen to that? The the Prince compilation originals where it has his Manic Monday, his Holly Rock, his His Nothing Compares to You is amazing. Yeah, and his um Jungle Love. So let's get to the meat of today's episode. I think there's two approaches to take when saying Purple Rain is one of the best albums of all time, one of the greatest albums of all time. Okay. And, and one element is its success. It's, um, it was a chart topper. Um, it was number one, number one on the Billboard charts for an unbelievable six months in 1984 can anything can anything do that anymore it it seems impossible right i mean you got to think about this 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 was the number one album for half of 1984 that's how that's how popular this album was everyone bought this album um it is uh, a multi-platinum in nearly every english-speaking country in the world in many non-English speaking countries. Um, this has sold millions and millions of copies. It is one of, and in fact, certainly it would be considered if we're considering this a soundtrack, uh, this is the greatest selling soundtrack of all time. Um, as, as an album, it is among 
the top 50 greatest selling albums of all time. So it was commercially and critically um, a, a huge success, a smashing success. But there are a lot of albums like that, it, especially in the 80s. There, there, are some, there are some phenomenally successful albums in the 80s that we don't value as highly. Yeah. And this does, it sounds, it sounds like an 80s album. There's, there's, you cannot remove, uh, it's easy to place this album in, in the 80s when you hear um, the instrumentation, the technology. I mean, there's just some things you hear in it that you go, oh, that sounds like an 80s album. But I would actually venture to say that Purple Rain and some of the studio tricks that were used in recording this album actually set the standard for what we think about when we think about 80s music. Mm-hmm. So Prince was a huge fan of something called gated reverb. Now, long story short, gated reverb is essentially when you set a threshold to how much sound has to come through in order for a microphone to pick up a noise. And reverb is essentially a large sound. It's essentially it's, it's echo. It's the sound you would get, let's say you're in a, a huge room, maybe you're in a large church, and you and you shout or you sing. That's that's reverb. That would be kind of classic room or hall reverb. And so the nature of how gated reverb work, especially on snare drums, which is what Prince was a fan of using it on, meant that the snare drum sound, instead of having a, a prototypical kind of rock pop sound or snap sound to the snare, ended up almost sounding like a whip. And so there is a, a, a very uh, unique sound, a sound that was hugely popular in the 80s and has started to come back just in the last 10 years or so in terms of its usage because a lot of, of, of current artists are reaching back into the 80s for some of that influence in terms of the technology of the audio that they were using. But so much of what we... Um, instinctively think of as music that sounds like the 80s, you may not even realize what you're actually hearing, what's making you think of it sounding like the 80s, is a very particular type of synth organ or synth sound. And that was the memory moog, which Dr. Fink, Matt Fink from The Revolution was famous for playing, and gated reverb. And so these two sounds that we often think of as being kind of the sounds of the 80s are really formalized on Purple Rain. And so if you're a fan of music from the 80s, it's unavoidable. Purple Rain set the standard for what that music was going to sound like. Now, you may be listening and you may be someone who hates 80s music. You may be someone that can't stand that sound. And for you, I would just say, listen to these songs. Even if you don't like the, the instrumentation, even if you don't like the technology that's used, even if you don't like the specifics of the sound, you, you're not going to be able to listen to Purple Rain, When the Doves Cry, Let's Go Crazy. You're, you're not going to be able to listen to those songs over and over and over again without falling in love with those songs. And yes, there's, there's a whole lot of chorus used on, on the guitars in Purple Rain. Let's Go Crazy is the most kind of live sounding track on the album. Uh, but, but even that comes in with this really overdone organ underneath Prince's kind of welcoming you to the album and to the movie. If uh, ever there were a song that sounded like a fog machine. Yes. To me, uh, that might be the one. Yes. I can't. I can't hear it without seeing the fog and him being like backlit and all that stuff. It's it's great. Yeah, but all but so all to say. So I think I think there's an argument to be made for this album from a commercial and critical standpoint, and then I think there is a very technical sound of the '80s, the influence of this album standpoint, and so even if this album was not as hugely successful as it was, mm-hmm. 
you would still be hard pressed to not put this album on a list because of the influence it had over the next 10 years and even the influence it has today yeah. on artists. But you combine those two things together. And, and I think that's just a no brainer. That's why it's on my list. Yeah. But, and that's definitely uh, better argued than my point, which is that I liked it so much in fifth grade and I still do. And, but I mean, you look at this track list, let's go crazy. An anthem, right? When mm-hmm. doves cry, huge. I mean, that was that was still it's still on the radio. When mm-hmm. doves cry, um, I would die for you. Huge, baby, I'm a star. Huge, purple rain. Now we're not just talking about a great song. We're talking about one of the all time greatest songs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and 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 in in a nine song album. Even if it was just those five songs, even if the remaining four songs were terrible, you would still you would still go, man. Five five of the nine songs on the album are that great. This is a great album. Yeah. So, Makai, with that in mind, let's let's dive in. Top five tracks. All your right. favorite your favorite five tracks from Purple Rain. I'm going to give you my five as they appear on the album, mm-hmm. and so I'm going to shock some people by just starting with. Take me with you. That was the sound of Makai losing all credibility with our listeners. <laughs> I, just, I just think it's a good time. I, I love driving around to it. And maybe that's because I, I don't mind the, the motorcycle montage in the movie. I love listening to this album in the car. And, and when I get to that moment, it makes me feel very good. Um, second, Darling Nikki. It's nasty. It's a nasty song. And I don't mind it. <laughs> it, it I'm here for it. And then, and then, I don't know how you can make this list and not have this run. I would die for you, baby. I'm a star purple rain. I mean, I, I just don't see how you make a list without those threes. I mean, that's probably, I mean, the side two of this album. Flawless. We're talking, we're talking all time best ever side twos. I mean, it's agreed. It's insane. So I'm going to be as basic as it comes on purple rain. But look, what's great about Purple Rain is what's great about Purple Rain. Like, yeah, we we don't have to beat around the bush about it. So, um, not not ranked, but just as they appear on the album, mm-hmm. let's go crazy. And then the entirety of of side B, because again, yeah, um, if you listen to Purple Rain on vinyl, which would have been um, the most common way that it was released in 1984, this was 1984 is probably the last year. Um, that vinyl sales outpaced cassette sales. By 1985, cassette sales would, would be ahead of vinyl sales. And then by 1991, CD sales would outpace cassette sales. And so it wasn't until just the last five or six years that vinyl sales have started to kind of lead the way again. But Purple Rain on vinyl, the entirety of side two is perfect. It is a perfect, flawless side B of an album. So Let's Go Crazy would be my first. And then in order, Wind Doves Cry, I Would Die For You, Baby I'm a Star, Purple Rain. That's a perfect list. I mean, like, what are we talking about? I mean, like this, I mean, that that's why this is on the list. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. it's incredible. It's an incredible run. So, Micaiah, we're going to take a break. And you're going to hear our independent record store of the week. And of course, Pakaya and I encourage you to check out and buy records from your local independent record store. And you're going to hear a word from our sponsor. And then we're going to be back with the revolution's own Dr. Fink. Hey, it's Rob, and I wanted to let you know that our independent record store of the week is the best record store with the weirdest name, Minneapolis's own Electric Fetus. Started in 1968, this has become a hub for music heads and the counterculture in Minnesota, and it has been the birthplace of great music lovers in great bands and we want you to check out one of electric fetus's two locations on 2000 4th avenue south in minneapolis or 
on 12 East Superior Street in Duluth. You can also find them online at electricfetus.com. Remember to support your local independent record store and consider buying today's record, Prince and the Revolution's Purple Rain at electricfetus.com. your way into music how how did you get involved in music what was your what was the thing that first drew you to music what was that kind of first dream of being a musician what i i have to give all the credit to my parents who uh, introduced me to music and theater they were both uh, well versed in in theater and and you know certain aspects of music my father was always into uh classical music and jazz and all that. And, and my mom was into that as well as pop music and Broadway. And, and they both studied acting and musical theater at the University of Minnesota. So they had degrees in theater when they left the university. And then they went on to uh, act in plays locally here in Minneapolis in the Twin Cities, St. Paul. And then my father directed, you know, and wrote some plays too that and one of which won an award national award for uh, best community theater play and then you know by the time i was 20 is when i had the opportunity to join prince so the first band we ever put together with our buddies i was literally 12 years old at the time 12 <laughs> and a half and the first gig we ever did was for some girls bat mitzvah party and we did that i was about a couple months shy of my 13th birthday and um and then it just continued all the way through junior high we just kept you know booking ourselves to play school dances around town and uh, by the time i was 16 i joined a group that had a house gig at a club up in a you know like kind of a northern suburb of minneapolis on a lake it was like a lake bar you know guys that were like eight to ten years my senior all these guys they hired me to play keyboards in the band i was kind of advanced <laughs> my age a little bit advanced because yeah. I started very young, you know, doing that. And and so uh, from there, I, I joined a couple more cover, you know, those were cover bands traveling the Midwest, you know, throughout my high school years. I was in several of these. And then, like I said, by the time I was 20, uh, Bobby Z, the original drummer who I didn't grow up with all the time, but we lived in the same community. We knew each other because our parents also did some fundraising events for... Um, the local Mount Sinai hospital where they do skits and MC the show and stuff like that. <laughs> my, my dad, they knew each other. So uh, that's how I met Bobby. And then Bobby came to me, Bobby was a couple years ahead of me. So when he was a senior at the, the suburban high school, we both went to, uh, he came to me later. We were both out of high school by then. And he played me Prince's demo tape at a gig I was doing. He took me out in his car in the middle of my, my gig during a break and played me the Prince demo tape. And I just said, wow, this is, uh, this is really great. Who's the band? He goes, it's not a band. It's the one guy in the studio writing and producing everything. I said, you gotta be kidding me. And he goes, yeah, and he's your age. I go, what? <laughs> I was 19 at the time uh, when I first heard of Prince through Bobby. And Bobby was working for Prince's first manager, Owen Husney at that time as an intern. And, and uh, Owen, had an advertising agency and uh and also was booking bands it was like a local promoter booking you know pretty big name groups into minneapolis and then he got a hold of prince he, he was introduced to prince by chris moon who was prince's first uh mentor really one of the first besides peppy willie another gentleman that, that worked with prince so chris owned a studio and so he just basically gave the keys to prince when his band came into book studio time he he really liked prince's talent and said you know what you're you're pretty good let I, i'd like to you to you know teach you how to run the studio and blah 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 and mm -hmm. and you know i mean prince's earliest sessions over there with chris producing with chris moon producing of course chris went on to, to co-write the song and did the lyrics for soft and wet of course off the first album but uh you know Chris always uh, tells the story about how when Prince started singing in the studio, he was very timid. 
and he, he just clammed right up. He couldn't even sing. And he had, he had Prince lay down on his back, close his eyes, and he put the microphone over him. And then he left the room and got Prince to relax and just focus. And that's how he, he got Prince to come out of his shell as a singer at that time. So I wonder for someone who is, you've been playing in bands and, and, and essentially you've been a gigging musician since about 13. That's right. And, <laughs> and here you are, a 19 year old, in, in the middle of a gig, you're hearing a demo tape of Prince. Exactly. And one of the first things you're told is this is another 19 year old. Yeah. So, so you, yeah. you've already had the experience of, of, of being well beyond your years in terms of talent and ability. Exactly. And then you hear another 19 year old who sounds like this. What, what were your first impressions hearing I, I, that tape? I was just completely blown away. I was, I was like, oh my gosh. I mean, this is what I aspire to be. I wasn't there yet. I was just just kind of dabbling in writing originals at that time, the last couple of years, but not doing doing it to the extent that Prince was. And, and but I was already doing some session work with some other artists, uh, players that were in these bands I was working in, doing original mm -hmm. stuff on the side. We were doing it on the side because we were cover bands playing all the the hits of the day, like from anywhere from Boston to to uh, Saturday Night Fever. I mean, we played everything under the sun in those bands. We've, actually, one group was more rock and roll oriented, pop rock. The other one was an R&B, more, more, you know, Steely Dan meets uh, all the disco era stuff later. That was, the, that was the group I was in right before Prince was playing. You know, we were in the disco era at that time. So, uh, but prior to that, it was more, you know, we were, I was playing Emerson, Lake and Palmer and yes and stuff like that you know but and the beatles and stones and you name it we were doing all of it you know aerosmith uh, led zeppelin we played all that stuff you know doobie brothers you know name, name any big name rock act in those in the 70s we were covering their stuff so I, that's how i cut my teeth you know learning the, the music of that era there's a lot of very talented musicians that get stuck in that phase of their career there's, yeah. there's a lot of really talented musicians that, you know, there's money to be made. It's not great money, but there's money to be made. You can make a living, essentially, at, you know, especially in a big city, you can make a living as a cover band, yeah. as, as, as a great cover act. Yeah, you can. And, 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 and so a lot of guys get stuck there. What was it like for you, even if it was on the side from, from these paying gigs, what was it like for you to at least begin the writing process and begin thinking outside of just being a great musical mimic to finding your own voice musically? Well, it was exciting and it was um, something that I was aspiring to anyway at that time. I mean, my, one, of, one of my goals actually in my senior year of high school is I'm, I want to be on Saturday Night Live in three years or you know, something like that. I said that to myself. I even said it out loud to friends as a my goal is to get in a band, a national act, playing original music, you know, all that stuff. So when, when I met Prince and had the opportunity to audition for a, a young artist like him, who's the same age, has the same hopes and dreams, and he's signed to Warner Brothers out in Los Angeles, and, he, and here's a kid from Minneapolis, okay? So it, it, was, it was a dream come true, really, for all of us who were involved with him. You know, obviously, he was the wunderkind. We were there as the support guys, you know. He's the whirling dervish, as I call them, in the studio. <laughs> and could just, like, play every instrument. He didn't even need you, really. Not really. But he did, he did want that input because he took, he learned things from everybody. I mean, he, obviously, you can't do it all. You know, you're, no man is an island. But he still, he knew it was smart, you know, to be collaborating with other people in the group. At, at times, you know, when it suited him, when it suited him, he had his vision, you know, you could not go to him very often and say, Hey, I've got a finished idea. It's all done. lyrics, melody, blah, blah, blah. And I'd bring it into him and he'd just go, yeah, it's good, but eh, you know, not what I'm looking for. You know, cause he had his vision. He had his vision. He had his whole thing. He had his whole persona. Everything was planned out. Everything, his whole strategy of being, you know, not really hostile to the press, but not wanting to do interviews and trying to remain more mysterious. All of these marketing, these were marketing tactics. They weren't necessarily because he was shy or because he hated the press. 
he just yeah, and he actually said, "I'm I'm worried they're going to twist my words too." That's another mm. reason I didn't like doing interviews because you know he he'd seen other artists get abused by that. But um, yeah, he just tried. He was trying to keep him his persona a mystery. You know, who is this guy? What is you know? It was all strategy for that. As someone coming up in the music scene there in the mid to late seventies, were there other artists there in Minneapolis that you felt like? kind of gave you some some roadmap that kind of showed you hey here's the way out into a successful career doing this or was it one of those things that you kind of just felt like you had to write it yourself because there weren't many guys who were doing that i i just fell into it because i knew the people that were around prince i happened to just happen to know them i knew bobby bobby knew me we weren't we weren't like communicating on a super regular basis but he, we were checking each other's bands out from time to time. We were both playing in cover bands too. And then, he, and then he got into a couple of groups right before Prince that were doing originals. He played with those briefly, both of them. One was longer, one was more over like a good year or so. I think the next one was a little sh a shorter tenure with them. And then he, then he got involved with Prince. But, uh, and I, like I said, I was working with another guy in the studio writing some stuff too at that time. So. To, to be with somebody on Prince's level was a great opportunity because there was, yeah, really yeah. wasn't anybody doing that very much in the industry anyway. You had mm -hmm. Steve Wonder, Todd Rundgren, probably a few others that were multi-instrumentalists that could go in the studio and write and produce everything themselves. And, uh, but, it, but someone who's at that age doing that sophisticated of a R&B pop album you know, the first one for you was, was pretty amazing, really, when you think about it. Um, help us understand how we get from, for you, and the self-titled, which has a couple of pretty big hits on there. And then finally, in 1980, with Dirty Mind, you've gone from someone who has now, who's just been around Prince and playing with Prince, who actually shares a co-writing credit on the title track, the opening track for Dirty Mind. How do you get to, to that point, to being a like a collaborator with someone who you said could do it all by himself. He obviously uh, was moved by some music I was jamming on at a rehearsal that day, which turned into Dirty Mind because he, he Prince was always looking for those diamonds in the rough at jam sessions. If he heard something, he'd go, I like that. Let's build something around it. And, and then he would take and do the lyrics and melody against whatever that was. And that's hmm. how, how that came to be. So it was just on a whim, really, on his part. Something struck him emotionally. And, and then it wasn't like me pushing. He never took anything that I pushed on him or that I offered to him. It would, it would always be a spontaneous, creative moment during a jam session when those ideas would come forth and he would take them. Let's fast forward a little bit to, to <laughs> 1999, mm -hmm. which Prince famously, I think, recorded everything by himself with the exception of backing vocals uh but th those had to have been a very important touring year how, how was the revolution evolving by 1999 it was great um it, by then like by that tour i'd say that's when things became you know on a level where you know if you were the rolling stones or the beatles or some really major label act that had gained some success and you're, you're out there on the nice tour buses or flying first class and staying in better than average hotels, you know, and you got your own room, you're not sharing it with another band member, you know, because we were making enough money to do that kind of stuff. But, uh, and then, you know, by Purple Rain, it went to another level because, um, you know, we, we actually chartered a jet for a while we had our own jet for a while on that tour. And then we were, of course, doing using tour buses as well. So it was a mixture of tour buses and having our own 727 to fly on at that point. It, it's hard to fathom because you're, you know, it's something that you dream about doing or being, being on that level. And then you get there. It, it, it's a bit shocking. It's a shock to the system at first, you know, as it progresses, then you get used to it and you become kind of like numb to it. And then, then you're in this hmm. travel bubble with everybody and you're just going from place to place and it's the same routine. You're on the bus, 
So try to sleep on the bus. If you can get some sleep, you got to get, you know, as soon as you pull into the next city, you got to get out, roll out of bed, out of your little, we call them coffin bunks in those, you know, tour buses. And, and then you, you get to you sleep again in the room and get up, go to sound check, get ready for the show, do the show. And then it started, the cycle starts over, get on the bus, travel overnight to the next city. So, and there would be breaks where you could actually fly home for a day, some, you know, in the middle of these tours, but not much. Well, tell us a little bit about your experience with Purple Rain and in, in the, the recording process and then what it was like when when the album and the movie came out and the reception for that. Um, what, what, was, what was that experience like? And especially knowing that you've got a songwriting credit, at least one, you, you wrote, co-wrote Computer Blue. I like to take credit for the end part of Purple Rain, the song where he sings the high falsetto woo-woo-woo-woos at the end, you know, mm -hmm. because I was actually playing that melody on the piano when we first jammed on the chord progression for the song because most of the record was ready and he, we didn't have that last song. So he brought it over to the rehearsal space and showed us the chord progression. He hadn't even finished the lyrics yet. So he said, okay, I want everybody to jam on this. We started jamming for at least two hours on this thing. And uh, at one point I was like playing the doo, 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 doo. The high part was like playing in octaves up on the, my right hand on the piano. And he latched onto that and started singing it. <clears throat> and there's, oh, wow. actually, there's actually a cassette of that where that happens. Hmm. That uh, I think Bobby was recording it. So was I, I haven't dug into my archives to try to find my, my copy, but we, we all used to have our boom boxes going all the time recording rehearsals <clears throat> because if he did a new arrangement or something different was going to happen with a show, we always, I was always recording it. And, and later, you know, when we do tour, when we were touring, he was changing stuff on tour. So I, I would always record rehearsals because if something new had to come out with an arrangement that evening, I would want to be able to review it in the dressing room. Before wow. taking the stage that night you know the the show when you watch that show at least when you know you can see the one that was recorded the best which was the syracuse new york show yeah the big they put it on youtube right uh, about a year ago for people to watch right. around the beginning of the lockdown they had they had the video of it mm -hmm. on YouTube? yeah so i mean it's just that was the gist of the show. It, it did evolve a bit throughout that tour. It wasn't always the, that same exact set, but it was pretty, you know, fairly close, give or take a few songs. He was always rotating things in and out. But I, I just really thought it was brilliant. It was so much fun to play every night as it was, as it stood. And then there were also things that he was changing at times, like I said, you know, it right at sound check the night before, oh, we're gonna do this transition for this and we're gonna move this song over there. And uh, we, we're gonna play this one tonight. We're gonna add this song for a while. And occasionally he would ask for help on a transition, like, hey, hey man, I'm, I'm a little stuck here. You got an idea, you know, or Wendy or Lisa, you know, we'd, we'd, anybody in the band he could, he would take advice from. How do you make sure that you're kind of getting up and bringing the energy, at least that of all the recorded versions of those tours that, that we see you bringing to the stage? How do you do that night in and night out through a tour? B12 shots? No, just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, actually, on that tour, we, we, we were doing a few B12 shots because we were you know, lucky to get four hours a night of sleep at times on those kinds of tours. But uh, reality is, is it, it just, you just do it, you know. I don't know how to explain it. You know, Prince Prince was uh, his energy level was always consistent on stage, so you had to, you know, work off of his energy. So we did, you know, you just did it. I mean, granted, it, it uh, the show becomes second nature. You know, you can go up there and play and just play a relaxed show. You, you know, for me, invariably throughout any tour, the the first show, first few, in fact, I have butterflies. I would wow. get, I would get butterflies before the show, and as a and as a child growing up, I used to do theater because my parents got me into theater, and I dealt with that too. It was the same thing. That's really nervous butterflies, scared, you know, stage fright coming at you like a freight train at times, no question. So 
you work through it. You just somehow, you know, soldier through, as they say. Otherwise, you're, 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 you, you know, you don't want to be looked at as a chicken, you know what, getting up there and, and choking. You know, it's the worst thing in the world. I used to, um, actually, it's funny, even after I worked with Prince, I used to have funny dreams where I would reunite with Prince in a dream for a gig. And we would do this show. And for whatever reason or another, I wasn't ready. Or something would fail on stage or I couldn't remember a part or something happened with, which never happened in real life because we were always, you know, impeccably rehearsed by him. But then the, that fear, it's like, you know, having that dream that everyone has where you go to elementary school in a dream and you're naked or in your underwear in class, you know, it's that kind of thing. You're just up there and you're paralyzed because you can't remember. But <laughs> For the yeah, we that never happened, thank God, in real life. And I never had any major mistakes during a show. We all make little ones from time to time, even Prince, but rarely. I very rarely heard him ever do anything like that. So, you know, he he sang too. He sang so tight. You know, I never heard him hit a, a bad note either. You're talking about his energy level, kind of maintaining nighttime that he always brought such a high energy level, and and certainly his his performances demonstrate that mm -hmm. what was it like not on what was it like off stage with prince on on those tours i mean was it was it all of that energy got saved up and used on on stage and so then he was pretty spent the rest of the day or or was it just kind of typical band friendships on the road just typical stuff but you know it, it, each tour he became more and more I wouldn't say totally isolated because there would be socializing at after show parties and there'd be certain things we do, but it, it, he really kind of kept us, especially the purple rain tour. He kept the band a little more at arm's length. Yeah. It became more of a, I'm the band leader. You're my employee relationship. Oh, wow. Like, like was where in the earlier years, it was more, um, a different kind of camaraderie as bandmates in it, like a true equal situation as, as band members. But then, then as he became the more of the, the real spotlighted star that he became, um, even though he was supposed to be that way from the get go, because we, we were in those building stages, it wasn't, it, it was, there was more of like just true, just, Hey, hang out, shoot the shit, be friends, blah, blah, blah. And then later, I felt like it became he became uh, less attentive to the band members in in a way that was more as equals. Was it that kind of reserve follow you guys into the studio for the follow up around the world in a day, or was it back to being more collaborative? Uh, I wasn't in on a whole lot of sessions on around the world in a day. I was newly wed, and he was kind of leaving me alone at that point after purple rain he just said everybody he even said we're all taking a break we this could go for two years i don't know but i but plan on a big long break here you'll still be under salary and you can do whatever you want go ahead do a solo album go ahead produce other artists do nothing take a break whatever you want to do i'm down with it but again you know three months later around the world in the day is done and it's like okay let's go you know <laughs> so he has he doesn't have the patience to sit around too long yeah and around the world in the day was done before the purple rain tour ended so you're promised a big long break and essentially four months later you're back on the road again well and, we, and weren't, we, we weren't on a major tour but we were doing stuff you know we were doing gigs and videos and 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 then you know of course the parade album which came later that that was more of a, a real bigger tour of Europe and Japan and then and then we did this thing called the hit and run aspect of it which was in the U.S. where we were just basing ourselves in Minneapolis and flying private Learjets out to gigs and then flying back home after the gig. So can you can you tell us about what what ultimately was the end of? the at least the professional relationship of 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 being a part of prince's prince's band it was kind of a it was weird um it's kind of an, a weird story though i mean it's an odd story but i was hired to produce a specialty album for a local 
or it's actually it was a, a label here that was based here but it was also up at canada and i don't know you probably heard of ktel records they were based here and uh back then they used to do some really odd records and they also had it like a, a, a another division that did original music so i was producing some original stuff with other artists for them and then at that time it was my first opportunity with them to do a a record and it was called hooked on beatles which was a a special beatles medley album and so i was just starting to produce that record and record it when prince we'd been on a break at after the the tour of 1990 which was kind of to support the graffiti bridge movie at that time and uh, so i was headlong into working and he said hey we got an offer to play at rock and rio de janeiro and i said oh that's cool and then i said i'm i'm working on this project it's really hard for me to get away he, he wanted me to drop everything and and go and the company said well we have a really specific deadline here and if you walk away you won't be able to do it for us so i told mm. prince that i changed my i i made the decision to stay and do the project and i said hey you think you can get someone to fill in for me and he just in fact he didn't even talk to me i had to deal with his secretary through all this whole communication it wasn't really directed with prince i was hoping he was going to talk to me directly and he never did so i just told her i said nope um i really got to do this project and i i wasn't on retainer anymore with prince at that point he got he brought in another guy to play and sit in but like forget it no one could fill my shoes that quickly it's impossible he had a rough time trying to do that show so prince was upset with me obviously for not dropping everything so he ended up hiring that other guy because of it never really got down to business with him about that ever wow <clears throat> yeah but that happened with a lot of people and it happens in other groups too that's what happens i think he was ready for a change too otherwise i'm sure he would have like called me personally and said hey you know what are you doing <laughs> I need you. Mm -hmm. Come on, what can I do to make it worth your while? Any anything. But I didn't get that. So the the impression I got was, oh yeah, well, 12 years is enough, Matt. Okay. I think I want to try some new people. And he did. He wanted the new the MPG, you know. And and you know, Wendy and Lisa, they and Bobby, they were let go 4 years before that. Um for various oh, wow. reasons, but that's their story to tell. Bands had go through changes. I thought of a question I wanted to ask you that I should have asked earlier. Yeah. Did you get to play SNL? Mhm. Mm Twice. Right on. And now here's Prince. When you played the first time, was there the part of you that kind of remembered back to that high school kid making this kind of big, big goal and here you are? What was, what was it like being in the green room waiting to go on for this moment you'd kind of dreamed about as a high school student? Butterflies. <laughs> Nerve wracking the whole time. And we had to wait till towards the end of the show to go on. So we had to sit in the dressing room and watch it. That's incredible. Yeah, that's great. So we we want to be mindful of your time. I know we told you we'd we'd have you for an, for an hour, and we're we're we've got about five minutes left. And so I want to ask a, a, about this game, Rhythm Rumble. Rhythm Rumble. Tell us a little bit about working on 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 a video game and producing music for a video game, and kind of what that process was like. What were some of your inspirations as you're as you're putting music together for a video game? Okay, well, this particular game. Uh, is going to be two opponents fighting each other. They're kickboxing and doing all this stuff, and they're and they're kicking and hitting each other in time to the songs that are playing in the background. So, and each character is dressed like the genre of music that you're fighting with. All genres of music, from punk to classical, literally, and they're all original pieces. I don't profess to be the be all end all producer to play on every genre of music in the world. It's, it's, I don't know too many who can, but uh, I ended up working on or writing or playing on five of the songs of the 14. The rest of them 
were produced and written by other composers that I brought on board that were all people I knew over the years that I knew like from different genres of music. That, and, and so that's how it came together. And actually one of the composers who got the title track of the song written and sang, and another one that in the game, one of the genres was my son, Max, who's an artist and producer right out in uh, LA right now. But uh, yeah, so he, uh, he landed that song. That wasn't me, the, 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 the game team picked it. I just gave them the opportunity to write one and they loved it. Wow. So this is something that we like to ask everyone uh, because we, we have shortcomings when we try to put together a list of the greatest albums of all time. So we'd like to ask our guests, what would you say are five of the greatest albums of all time? The first one that comes to mind is probably Sgt. Pepper by the Beatles. Just about any Steely Dan record, like Asia in particular. I was highly influenced by some of the, the great jazz fusion players, you know, like Weather Report, Joseph Zhao, and old Chick Corea, may he rest in peace, who just passed. Herbie Hancock. And, you know, I mean, you know, Bitches Brew. I mean, if we're going to talk about Miles, you could definitely put that in line with the top five. But, you know, it's, it's, there's too much. It's very difficult for me to categorize all five in a, in a serious way. Because mm -hmm. there's, there, I could lump another 10 in there easily. Uh, Matt, we can't thank you enough for doing this. Um, you've been so gracious with your time, and uh, we're so excited uh, for people to get to hear uh, you talk about some of your experiences with Prince and some of what you've got coming up. And we'll be sure uh, to let our listeners know about uh, Rhythm Rumble. Yeah, and also also mention uh, V Records v, or VME Entertainment. The, the the website is vmediaentertainment.com. Check that out. That has all the artists that are signed to our label are on there and all of our artist services that, that artists can tap into at V Media Entertainment. Excellent. Excellent. We'll, we'll do it. Uh, thank you so much for your time and, and thank you for the role you played in one of our favorite albums of all time. You're welcome. Thank Have you. a good one, Matt. Thank Thanks, you. Matt. Have a good night, guys. What an incredible guest to have. We want to thank Matt Fink, the doctor himself, for being with us. What an incredible picture into life as a, a band member playing with Prince. What it must have been like to be a member of the revolution. And Micaiah, as you and I talked about this a little bit before the recording, Prince is maybe the earliest version only only maybe michael jackson is anywhere close to this but prince is one of those people that is is really kind of the model for the modern pop superstar and yeah. and so if you think about a taylor swift uh if you think about um you know a drake any kind of huge artist that you're that you're imagining where they are both the creative force they are the product itself and then they are kind of the ceo of the organization that is what prince was and you can hear some of the good the bad and the ugly that came with that through our conversation today with matt fink and so we're so grateful that he was uh willing to share some of those stories with us and and also to share with us uh some of the incredible experiences they had and man, what what an unbelievable journey to have dreamed about playing SNL and then to be able to see that dream come to fruition, not once, but twice. That has to be incredible. So, Mikhail, what are your takeaways after our conversation with Dr. Fink? There's, there's this bizarre moment where I'm like, oh, I'm not just talking to like Rob about Prince. I'm talking to one of Prince's key collaborators during his like, greatest run of albums you know what i mean so it, it's it, it was a, a really just great moment uh, mm -hmm. and a great conversation to to have been a part of it was it was great i loved it loved every second of it so as we come to our conclusion today prince prince and the revolutions purple rain 
this is obviously going to be included. This is certainly warranting of its place among our first 25 albums. And Micaiah, this is our 10th episode looking at an album. So Mm -hmm. this is our 10th album to be included. So next week, we're going to be covering some, we're we're going to take a break from looking at albums, and we're going to look back on the first 10 episodes, and we're going to talk about where we started and where we've come as a podcast and kind of what the format and, and goal will be moving forward from here, and also looking at ranking those first 10 albums that we've included. Yeah, we're going to, right away, we're going to stop having fun. We're... (laughs) We've only done 10 albums, and we're going to stop the fun. We're going to put the fun on hold and try to rank these like a couple of madmen. Uh, I'm excited about it, but I'm, I'm, already, I'm already sad <laughs> about having to do it. it it's, oh, man. Well, before we, before we get into that, because that'll be next week, before we get into that, Micaiah, what are your five top Prince albums? Yes. This is much easier. So I dig this question. Um, starting at number one, because we already know it, so there's no suspense in it. Purple Rain, of course. Uh, number two, 1999. I love that just electro-funk, double LP, sprawling pop masterpieces that make up that album. I, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, and then another double LP for number three, Sign of the Times. And that one that one took time for me. It wasn't until the new remastered version. I picked up the CD. And I spent a lot of time listening to it in my car. And, and that's what really helped me come around to it. And so that, that, that's a safe number three. And number four, going back a little bit earlier, uh, Dirty Mind. That is... Eight tracks, four songs each side, 30 minutes long. Couldn't get further away from 1999 side of the times, those double OPs. And, and I love that side of Prince as well. And another side of Prince, my number five, Around the World in a Day, which not a lot of people put on their five. Uh, but man, like three of my favorite Prince songs, three, they might all three be in my top 10. I'm not afraid to say it. I love Raspberry Beret. I love that mm-hmm. song. It, it just makes me feel good. Yeah, and I, and I love the way I love the melody of the way I love the way Prince sings on it. There's something so so cheeky and funny about it. I don't know. It, it's different. It's a different side of Prince that I, I really enjoy. And and then, but also sexy, but like not like in a darling Nikki way. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, Pop Life and Paisley Park. Those are those are two. Uh, more of my my favorite Prince songs that are on that album, so it, it has to be in the top five. And then and then you have songs like Tambourine that looks forward to what he's gonna do in Sign of the Times. Uh, yeah, it's just a great album. So more people more people need to listen to Around the World in a Day. In uh, one to five favorite Prince albums, number one, Purple Rain, a a close number two for me. It is it is not. I think Purple Rain is the best Prince album, mm-hmm. but it just inches ahead for me of Sign of the Times. I'm mm-hmm. a huge fan of Sign of the Times. They both dictated what music was going to sound like after. I mean, uh, from like 84 to 87, Purple Rain was like, this is what music going to sound like until mm-hmm. Sign of the Times comes out. And then from like 87 to like 94, I mean, it dictates what what pop music gonna sound like. R and B, neo soul, like it, uh-huh. it it is just like, hey, this is the new sound, you guys. Which is something Prince did a couple times in his career that Michael didn't do. Yeah, I agree. And and here's what I'll say. So I'm we've we've already done an episode talking about Parliament's Mothership Connection. I'm a huge funk fan. Mm-hmm. Housequake on Sign of the Times. Oh yeah. Uh, might be my favorite funk song not written by Parliament. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say Love Sexy at number three. This is surprising to me. Um, you just love Alphabet Street, huh? I heard that album for the first time, um, let's say, at, at, a, at a formative moment in, in my life. And it, and it has always held a, 
a special place for me. It sounds like um, a real Prince song. Yes. Um, Around the World in a Day is my number four. 1999 is my five. So no dirty mind or controversy. No, controversy would be six for me. Dirty mind would probably be eight. Oh, interesting. And so do you have mm-hmm. Parade ahead of? Diamonds and Pearls. Oh, that's a fun pick. The, the uh, Prince's, Prince's turn towards early 90s hip hop and R&B um, mm-hmm. is, th- that's, that's a short-lived but fun turn of his career that I enjoyed. Kind of shocked at how low Dirty Mind is. I, man, I love that album. Yeah. Also, yeah, so Controversy is my number six, too. And I told somebody, I told a friend this earlier, that if Dirty Mind and Controversy were his first double LP, that might be the best Prince album. Um, I, 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 I love the songs that are on there. Makai, you want to do the goodbyes? Invite people to listen next week to our Oh, yeah. Countdown. I mean, I, I want to thank Lorne. I want to thank all the fabulous writers. I want to thank the band. Uh, quote Big Mouth. I want to thank the Little Media for their awesome agenda. I want to thank Rob. 